In the past year, Kia America has experienced incredible momentum with a growing portfolio of innovative and award-winning vehicles. Moving forward, Kia is expanding to also usher in a new age of mobility for all. With the strength of a new logo, purpose, and business model, Kia is transforming itself into a symbol of innovation and sustainability. Kia is focused on becoming a leader in mobility and is charging ahead with electrification across their lineup, including the all-electric 2022 EV6, with estimated range of 310 miles depending on trim level and state-of-the-art 800V fast charge capability. But one thing will never change. Kia will continue to provide customers with world-class quality, design, and innovative technology at a great value. Inspiration is contagious. Just like Asian Hustle Network and its amazing network of entrepreneurs who have inspired many by committing to their purposes, Kia will do the same with vehicles inspired by world-class innovation. Kia, movement that inspires. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi everyone, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Tiffany Yu. Tiffany is the CEO and founder of Diversibility, an award-winning social enterprise to elevate disability pride. The founder of the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, a monthly microgrant that has awarded $52,500 to 53 disability projects in eight countries, and the host of Tiffany and You, the podcast. She serves on the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council and was a 2020 co-chair of the World Economic Forum Sustainable Development Impact Summit. At the age of nine, Tiffany became disabled as a result of a car accident that also took the life of her father. She started her career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and has also worked at Bloomberg and Sean Diddy Combs Revolt Media and TV. She is a three times TEDx speaker and spoke on five sessions at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos. She has been featured in Marie Claire, The Guardian and Forbes. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So I am the first generation daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And I'm the youngest of four. And a lot of people actually think I'm the oldest, which will tie into my upbringing and how it influenced who I am today. So the big turning point actually happened during my childhood when I was nine that influenced a lot of the work that I do now which is I was involved in a car accident where my dad, who was driving, unfortunately passed away. And I acquired a slew of injuries, including shattering a couple of bones in one of my leg. I permanently paralyzed one of my arms. And much, much later, I'd be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And the reason why I started out my intro by talking about being the daughter of Asian immigrants is because in the way that I grew up, My mom actually said something to me over Thanksgiving, which I think encapsulated. And she says, I don't want anyone to know about our struggle. And so after this car accident happened, so rewind 24 years after this car accident happened when I was nine, the way I was brought up was 
exactly what my mom said. I don't want anyone to know about our struggle. For So for about 12 years after the car accident, I didn't tell anyone about the car accident. I didn't tell anyone about my arm. I didn't tell anyone about my dad. I said he was away on a trip. I wore long sleeves all the time. And I actually think that it is those 12 years of silence and not feeling like my story mattered that not only influenced the work that I do today with DiverseAbility, which is all about elevating disability pride and exploring what it means to be proud in a disabled identity. But I also think it's those 12 years that exacerbated what ultimately ended up becoming a PTSD diagnosis. That, that is that's, not that's my, my first, upbringing. <laughs> that, that's, my, that's not my first time hearing that story. And it just hits me every single time. You know, it just yeah, it yeah. shows me how it, resilient it, you are. Yeah. Well, and, and it hits me. It hits me every time, too. So today was kind of like my podcast recording day. So I had I did another. That's why I have my my fancy microphone in a co-working space. But I was reflecting on it today and someone asked me, they said, you know, what were those years for for nine year old Tiffany or nine and nine, 10, 11, 12, 13? And I was like, I don't even know. Like, I can't even fathom what experiencing something like that at nine years old was. And that's me, right? It's like there's this disconnect between this person who was literally trying to survive after something that was not only fatal for someone else in the car, but also just really traumatic to then becoming here, you know, able to give you the the two minute version of it and really embody it within my work. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so powerful to hear that. And it's just for our listeners to get more more background also on myself. My sister is also disabled in her foot. And there's a part of me that wishes that she's similar to you and that she's strong and that she's open. And it's been for so long that she still doesn't talk about it. She continuously hides it. And it's, it comes to, to Asian culture, right? We don't want to see people to see our struggle. Unfortunately, I love my parents. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, I love my parents a lot, but they were teaching her to like hide it from the world. And now that I'm in my 30s, my sister is almost 40 now. She continuously does not show the world who she is, right? And she shuts the world off. And I feel like you definitely took the struggle and made it a strength and i want to understand what that process was like for you because as you mentioned you have suffered some ptsd from those 12 years of your life what was that turning point for you where you're like enough is enough i want to be who i am and i want to i want to be proud of who i am i want to hear what that process was like for you yeah and thanks brian for sharing more about your family not the first time i've heard about it but i also i also empathize and can't empathize about what it's like to be a sibling and wanting to be there and and wanting her life and your whole family's lives to be different in terms of how you relate to uh, her, her disability. And a lot of my work really is around how do we get people to this second disability origin story where you feel proud or at least just own and accept that it has influenced how you move about the world. And the turning point, I wish I could tell you it was some, it was like a light switch turning on, but I think it was, I think it, I'm just thinking back, there were a couple of things that happened. So the first was I had an internship at Goldman Sachs. So this is my junior year of college uh, or right after my junior year of college. And I had an, I had an experience there where I felt like I wasn't given an easy button for life. And 
that was my first professional work experience. And I actually wasn't, I wasn't really crushing it. I was really struggling. The hours were getting to me. I was making a lot of mistakes. And something you could do is you could go in and talk to a recruiter every single week to get feedback on how you were doing. And the recruiter that I had spoken with on one of these particular weeks was actually the recruiter that I had known since I was a freshman in college. So she had known me for at least three years. And as I was walking out of the room and she had delivered the feedback to, you know, attention to detail and, you know, I was doing fine, but here were a couple things that I could work on. I was feeling really down on myself. And as I walked out of there, she said, Tiffany, I want you to know that you deserved your place here. You don't need to have a chip on your shoulder. And I don't know if I'd call that a calling in or a calling out, but it was kind of the tough love that I needed because in those 12 years, I was kind of existing as like a shell of a human being. I felt like, you know, you talk a lot about your sister and wanting her to be who she is. And in that particular scenario with the recruiter, I think she saw me at my potential and I was operating way below there. And it was actually that experience, that internship experience at Goldman that made me really curious about what it would be like to not only meet other disabled people, but have kind of this like tough love to say, what would it look like if all of us were given the tools and the community that we need in order to thrive? Because I really believe that all of us exist on this earth to, and all of us have gifts that we're, we spend a lifetime trying to figure out how we impart them on the world. You know, Brian, for you, like this podcast and using the platform that you've built is one version of your gifts, right? So, so that was kind of like the first turning point. And then there were two other instances after that. One was, and most people don't know this, I applied for a Fulbright. Um, I had just come back from studying abroad in China and, and I wanted to, and so my research proposal was that I wanted to study the impacts of the Sichuan earthquake on students who became physically disabled and their educational outcomes. Because in China, based on like your test scores and their educational values, there's something in there that says you need to be physically and intellectually fit in order to uh, thrive in your educational career. And so I was like, here's an earthquake that happened that caused a lot of people to acquire physical disabilities. Is this going to impact their educational outcomes? I mean, honestly, any mention of earthquake and Sichuan in China is probably not going to get accepted. But that was the first time that I really looked at who, who could be the best person to do this research project? And not only do I, you know, have loose Chinese roots, but I also have a disability. And I and to study that intersection was kind of like point number two. And that was actually the first time that I had really like used my disability or as a way to explore how it was viewed within society, which then kind of led to the last point, which is. I was a resident assistant my senior year of college, and we had to participate in a diversity training. And we were asked to cut out slices of a pie based on how important di different aspects of our social identity were to us. So how important is being a woman to me? How important is being Taiwanese? How important is being an American? How important is being disabled, et cetera, and religion, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera. And this was the first time I had seen disability included on a pie about identity. Because before then, I had only really viewed disability as a medical diagnosis. And in those 12 years that I mentioned earlier, and I realize this answer is getting a little long, but in those 12 years, the way that my mom treated my disability was through what's called the medical model of disability. So I have a disability diagnosis and let's find some treatment to fix it. There's something wrong with my body that needs to be fixed. So that meant physical therapy, surgery, acupuncture, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a really harmful way to view my body as an adolescent. And so senior year of college, you know, to be able to look at this pie and say, wow, being a woman really is important to me and being Taiwanese is important to me. Oh, and disability is something I think about every single day. And it's also part of this pie. It's not some medical thing that I can just leave at the door, you know, when I walk into a new space. So, so it's really those three kind of turning points that have happened over a couple of months that really became Diversibility 1.0. I appreciate that, that answer a lot. It just, you really explained to us what was the process of you accepting who you are. And I also feel like it doesn't really include like the emotional side of things to like things are emotional things that are starting to unravel, right? Years of pain and hurt. And I don't know, I feel like that's the part that separates you. And it's the reason why I feel so connected to you because you have felt that that type of pain before, right? And when things start to unravel and you start to accept that, you know, disability is becoming a part of your identity. How did you emotionally react? If you don't mind sharing to us, like, were you crying of tears of pain, crying tears of joy? And how did you harness that, that, that emotion into the versatility, the thing that you're doing now? Because essentially your company and organization as a founder has probably, in my opinion, has resonated with you a lot as a person, right? So I just want to dive deeper into that and like understand like your levels of emotion that you felt during that time period. Yeah, yeah. So earlier this year, I had an opportunity to give or to deliver a TED Talk, a virtual one. And my topic was, or the talk is called The Problem with Positivity. And through the lens of those 12 years, I talked about kind of how toxic positivity was internalized within me. And, you know, the, the TLDR or the TLDW, too long didn't watch, of the talk is that in order to really celebrate the full humans that we are is to experience all of our emotions. And I spent such a long time dismissing the validity of this story and the trauma that had happened to me. So I still remember the first time I ever shared the car accident publicly. It was October 22nd, 2009. So senior in college at the time, you know, Fulbright proposal in, just finished my internship, did this RA training and I cried. And, you know, sometimes when I see old videos of me talking about the car accident, I cry because my heart breaks for this nine-year-old Tiffany who experienced enormous amounts of loss that I really don't wish any child to experience. So I also want to highlight that I think that the car accident is tragic. I think that the fact that I'm disabled today is not. So the way I became disabled is a tragedy to me, but the fact that I live in a disabled body today is not. And that's nuance. So, and that's intersectionality. That's all of these things at play, which is why I love podcasts because you really get to kind of dig dig through those layers. So again, flashback of 2009, first time sharing the story, I cried. And I cried because it was the first time I really felt seen in this secret car accident that I couldn't tell anyone about. And I actually think it was the being seen in my grief and my pain that is what that is what was emotionally displayed. I think that a couple years after that, it was 2016 when I met someone who 
ran a mental health nonprofit called Stigma Fighters. And she told me that the car accident was trauma. So from 1997, which is when this car accident happened to 2016, so 19 years, I didn't, that word was not part of my vocabulary. And once we're able to name things, like not only like name an emotion as it comes up, but name trauma as trauma, that's actually when we can start to do the work to heal and really kind of dig in a little bit deeper. You know, as I look at this car accident that happened, it is what I would call like multi-layered grief. So it is the grief, the classic grief of losing a parent. It is the grief of losing your childhood. And it's the grief of changes in my body. And so this compounded grief through this internalized toxic positivity didn't have a way of coming out. And in 2009, it only started to. And then in 2016, that's actually when that labeled trauma kind of came in. And it made me start to think about, there's this saying that time heals all wounds, but I'm wondering if we need to have an addendum on it that says time plus work plus therapy plus lots of other things actually does actually starts that healing process. So, so I know your question was really around kind of the emotions of that turning point, but I think it is a constant revisiting of knowing that I'm probably going to be healing for a long time and that's okay. And I'm committed to doing that work. Thank you for, for being so vulnerable and sharing that, that side to us. I feel like a lot of us, or some of us in very similar situations feel the exact same way, right? They feel like they can't express themselves or worse, they feel like they can't accept themselves. Mm. And that's why I was looking so so much forward to this podcast to be able to finally have you on and, and share that side of you because I feel like your story needs to be heard more from more people, right? And you're right. I do feel like we do have a platform out there that I want to utilize the best of our ability to make sure that we have covered not just entrepreneurs, mission-driven entrepreneurs, but people like yourself with, with stories that relate to a lot of other people to be able to hear that. Because this, to us, yes, we have talked about this many, many times, but to other people hearing for the first time, it can be life-changing. And I want more people to hear your story and, and feel the way you do. And one of my questions is, you know, as you're coming to your own person and accepting who you are, have you ever felt like there's any situations where it was hard for you to control your feelings? that you just have random outbursts of anger or, or tears or happiness or did things to overcompensate certain things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, such a good question. I, I think that, so I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2019 and from a period of 2017 until 2019, I would admit that I was quite unwell and emotionally unstable and actually quite unkind to other people. And there was, so recently at Diversability, we've kind of been doing some outreach for outreach to uh, potential corporate partners. Um, so I'm connecting with people in my LinkedIn network and I reached out to someone and I said, hey, you're working at this company. We'd love to kind of explore partnership with Diversability and, and learn more about what you're working on. And she came back to me and she said, Tiffany, every single time I interacted with you, she's like, I love the work that you do, but every single time I interacted with you, you weren't very nice. You weren't very kind. And I looked at the date when we connected and it was in that time period. And I felt so bad because what PTSD does, at least for me, is it transported me to a reality that wasn't real for other people. And it put me into this fight or flight state for this elevated fight or flight state. Like I was always unsafe. And in that state, when I was feeling really unsafe, I would just lash out at whomever. 
And one of the things that's interesting about working in an advocacy space is oftentimes if we sit in places of looking at looking at how unjust the system can be for historically excluded and marginalized groups, we can be angry. And the thing with anger and any feelings is that it's hard to compartmentalize emotions. And so if I'm feeling really unsafe or really angry at work, I'm going to carry that anger into my personal relationships, you know? So, so anyway, so there was all kind of like high emotions swirling during that period of time. Um, I would call it, you know, some people might call it emotional dysregulation of not knowing that I was experiencing PTSD symptoms. And so anyway, so I went back, I went back to her and I explained to her the situation and I said what I needed to say and, and apologized and you know, I'm glad, Brian, that you and I didn't meet during that period of time, but I I was not a very nice person. And the reason why I like that you asked this question is that I find that the way that I grew up, I was taught to master my poker face. And what that means to me is, you know, don't let anyone see, don't let anyone see the fullest expression of your emotions, right? And so much of my work now is to feel whatever you need to feel. That's how you move through some of the harder, tougher emotions. And there's a quote that I'm really inspired by. I'll just close my answer with this, which is uh, it's from someone named Francis Weller. And they say, the work of the mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by them. How much, how much, what is it? How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. And so if we look at, so in this case, it's grief and gratitude, but if you take happiness, sadness, you know, whatever, spectrum of emotions, like in order to know what happiness looks like, we need to sit in the depths of our sadness, right? So Brian, you and I, you know, you've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast of what I went through, right? As, as a kid. And I sat in that place so that I know what pure joy feels like and looks like, right? And part of, part of again, human being human is to be able to sit in both of those places. The way you put it, it's so eloquent. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, I appreciate that, that answer a lot. And I think what you went through is completely normal. And although earlier you said that you wish you didn't meet me at that time, or you're glad you didn't, I didn't meet you at that time, I kind of wish I met you during that time, right? And I want to be every side of Tiffany, understand who you are as a person, because what you said is true. I, I'm, at, I'm always at the the brunt part of my sister lashing out. <laughs> my family would say, you're just a punching bag. <laughs> um, so that's the reason why I asked the questions that I did because I, can, I can't say 100% certain that I can understand what you went through or what my sister went through. I can say from the other side, I can, also, I can see a lot of hurting. Mm. Right? And I want to make sure that people who listen to this podcast hear that too if they're hurting as well with something very similar to this. It's not very uncommon to hear once you dive down to the nuances that a lot of people are going through certain things. And I, I guess the harsh reality is within Asian culture too, it's like we're so about, we're so obsessed about appearance and not seeming weak and whatever. I understand that during a time, different time period that if you did show a sense of weakness, you are the first to be called out or killed or whatever in your country because of oppression. So I do understand. We're at a new point of our lives and generation and era that that part should be unlearned you know we should learn how to express ourselves and work together and be more collaborative 
So I want to quickly switch the conversation to the versatility. Like talk about, you know, you I know you mentioned earlier that the three things that led up to diversity point one. What was the versatility point two? And when did the, when did the versatility become something that you wanted to dedicate your full time and effort into doing? And you want to call this your career? Yeah, great question. I will admit now looking in retrospect that from creating this, it started as a university club in 2009 up until maybe 2019, I was pouring from an empty cup. I would say that Diversibility's growth very much mirrored Tiffany's growth, right? The founding story of Diversibility is the first time that Tiffany shared her origin story of how she became disabled publicly. and. Turning point. So, so yeah, so 2009, uh, I was a senior in college. Diversibility had ended up receiving something called a Reimagine Georgetown grant to get started. And Georgetown is when it, where I went to school. So it's not, it's not super random. And at the time, what I was really in, envisioning was if Georgetown was a place that said that they celebrated diversity, I was really curious where disability was part of that conversation. So fast forward. So then I graduated and went to went to work full time at the bank and work in various finance jobs. And come 2014 to 2015 timeframe, I started getting Twitter messages and emails from people I had never met before asking what was going on with diversity, how could they get involved? And one of the emails I had gotten was from someone who shared their disability origin story with me and said, I came across some articles of you. Now, keep in mind, this is 2014. So the articles he came across were from 2009 to 2010 timeframe. So he came across some old articles and he was like, here is my story. And I really want to figure out one, some way I can share my story down the line when I'm ready. And I, and when I got this email and these Twitter messages, I was like, wow, this person came across something that happened five years prior, which was creating this club diversity at Georgetown, felt so compelled to find my email address, which at the time I didn't have a personal brand. So it wasn't plastered on my Instagram, like you can go find it now and, and felt compelled to share a story with me that he hadn't shared with anyone else. And to me, that is the beauty of diversity is we meet someone, say your sister, they get plugged into our community and they lurk for a long time. They're reading stories of other people. They're joining our events. They're hearing other people talk about their experiences. And after a certain point in time, they say, wow, look at that person. Look at Tiffany. Look at, you know, let's manifest. Look at Brian's sister. I don't need to feel shame about this anymore, or I don't want to feel shame about this anymore. Let me tell my friend or let me post on my private Instagram. And really it's it's strange. It's like this exposure effect, which in reality is called empowerment, uh, but it's, it's this exposure effect to say, these people are modeling for me what it looks like to be unapologetically disabled and proud in, my, in all of my identities. And I wanna be like that. I wanna feel liberated. So fast forward, I relaunched Diversibility as a side hustle in 2015. And at the time, the best way I describe us at that time was we were kind of just a disability meetup group, but we were open to everyone. So our, our speakers were always disability centered, but we wanted everyone to hear these stories. And 
In 2017, which is actually when I transitioned into Diversability full-time, and I will highlight that Diversability, we are a for-profit business, uh, and we chose that because we wanted to show that disability isn't just charity. And I'm happy to talk about our revenue or our business model if people are interested later on. But in 2017, I moved out, in, or in 2016, I moved out to San Francisco for a job, for a startup job. And it was, I was in it for six months, and I got fired. And... I share and I'm open about that because I feel like getting fired is also an area that some of us might have a little bit of shame in. So I got fired. And at the time, I did I did feel a little shame. I didn't really tell anyone that, that that's what had happened. And I told myself, you know, why don't I just work on diversity and building community while I look for my next job? And now we are over four and a half years later, and and I've been full-time in this. And we have a team of six people who all identify as disabled as well, and we're able to support some of their livelihoods or contribute to their economic self-sufficiency, which to me is the point of all of this, right? Like to me, I remember a couple years ago, I, I posted in our Facebook community, I said, what does disability empowerment mean to you? Disability empowerment to me is how can I use whatever power and privilege I have to create more access and opportunity in this identity that other people have attributed and society has attributed so much shame to. And today, I feel like we have evolved from being that disability meetup group and the way I describe us now to not only our corporate partners, but to other people is we kind of see ourselves as like the disability ERG or the disability employee resource group that exists outside of a community. So not only do we have disabled people in there, we have the allies and the non-disabled people who support us. We're hosting different events. We're trying to move the conversation forward on disability inclusion. I'm, I'm really glad that you restarted Diversability 2.0. And the fact that you made it work this time, you know, it, it went to separate phases, like the first phases meetup and idea and became more, more for the community, right? So I like the fact that you mentioned that you guys are a for-profit instead of a non-profit. I want to hear the reasoning behind that. And this, to me, like this area is extremely niche. So how did, how did you find a way to monetize and support yourselves and make hires and support other people in your community as well? Yeah, great question. And, and we're still figuring it out. I know, Brian, you and I have had conversations around community and turning communities into community businesses, because I actually think, I think community can be a business. So the initial decision to not be a nonprofit was because when I first relaunched Diversability 2.0 six years ago, I reached out to a lot of disability nonprofits that I had been affiliated with or had supported. And some of them came back to me and said, why are you bringing this back? You know, what are you going to do that we don't already do? And I, at the time, didn't really see anything that was not only cross-disability, but was beyond a self-advocacy organization. So included non-disabled allies in the conversation. But then third was more than just awareness. I call, I call what we do like awareness plus. So not only do I want you to be aware of disability, I want you to see us proud and empowered in it. And I think that those are the stories that are that are interesting to me and that I want more visibility on. So all of that said, I was hesitant to start as a nonprofit if I already saw from other disability nonprofits that they were nervous about us entering the space. And I didn't 
I'm, I've always been built and I'm, and I know you do this at Asian Hustle Network too. I want to be, I want to be abundant. I lived for a really long time from a scarcity place and I really want to help carry and, and be part of the change that happens in the disability community to move from scarcity, right? A lot's been stripped from us. A lot of our humanity has been stripped as well to abundance. So I said, okay, I will incorporate this as an LLC for now. Maybe we'll become a nonprofit later on, but let me see if I can figure out a sustainable way to, to create a business. So interestingly enough, though, I hadn't incorporated until maybe like six to nine months after we started hosting these informal meetups. And the reason why we incorporated was actually the New York Public Library came to us and they said, can we hire you to curate a selection of speakers from diversity for a, a librarian staff awareness training? So they wanted people who, have, who had different types of disabilities to come and talk about their experiences at the library and how they navigate the library. The New York Public Library is a big, it is big. <laughs> and uh, and we had been hosting some of our diversity events at the library for free. So I think that's how they got exposure to us. But the fact that they saw value in our lived experience and were willing to compensate us for it, that's actually how I became an entrepreneur. That's actually how I thought that maybe diversity had a business model, which is our product is we have this incredibly diverse community and you are looking for all different types of dis uh, disability centered perspectives and we can help curate that for you so that's when we first launched our kind of like disability speakers bureau which is let us curate these different perspectives for you with for the near public library so that was that was when we got incorporated we had to like bring a lawyer on to like make sure the contract looked fine and so that was actually the beginning of it i didn't think that Diversability could be a business to be totally transparent. I thought it was just something that I would do on the side, you know, side hustle generation. Now I no longer advocate for side hustles because they're unsustainable unless you unless you figure it out. I mean, even look at you, Brian, like you were side hustling Asian Hustle Network for a while and then transitioned into it full time. But then earlier this year, we started kind of ramping up our our brand and corporate partnerships. We host events every single month. And then we actually launched a paid membership version of our community. So we still have our free Facebook group. I know Asian Health Network is also a Facebook group, but we, and that's always going to be a free, loosely moderated space. But if you're looking for additional curation and additional support, we have a paid space that has master classes that are happening all the time. That is, that is absolutely amazing. Shout out to you. Like, shout out yeah. To and and I'm so... And the reason why I have such a big smile on my face is I was nervous to launch our paid community. I sat on the idea for nine months thinking that no one no one was going to be interested in something like that. And we have, the last time I checked, we had 96 members. And maybe by the time this goes live, we'll be past 100. But yeah, I really, I kind of like look at myself as the case study and I say, for a long time, I felt shame. I didn't think my story mattered. Then I realized there was value in my lived experience. Then I realized I can create content. I can use my experience to educate and advocate and create a you know economic system that helps support me. And hey, all you other disabled people, I want you, I want to take you along with me, right? 
So I really believe that a win for one of us is a win for all of us. And I'm sure you believe this within the Asian Hustle Network as well. I absolutely believe that. And I fully believe in abundance mindset. And I'm really glad, I'm really, really glad that you moved towards the abundance, abundance mentality as well, that we can all succeed. And if the pie grows bigger, it just benefits us all. And I'm really happy that you're able to find a sustainable business model that works because I feel like a lot of people have trouble signing or like coming up with something that is sustainable, that it's passionate. You know, the Venn diagram where it's like, you're passionate and then things you love doing and money. <laughs> most, most people only find two areas of a circle, but the fact that you were able to find three, it's a sweet spot, obviously. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited to where the versatility will go. And just to revisit your point, for our listeners, how can we how can we join this community? Because I really want to get you past a hundred members or more. So how can what what is the link right there that we can go to and join and support? Yeah. So uh, you can go to mydiversability.com forward slash community, and you'll actually see both of our community offerings there. So if you are an ally, a non-disabled ally, just looking to be witness to conversations that are happening in the disability community. Uh, we see our Facebook group as more like educational. There's just a lot of activity happening in there. You can join there. We have, then you'll also see a link to our paid community. It's called the Diversability Leadership Collective. We have not only sliding scale options, but also employer sponsor uh, letter templates. And and yeah, I, I feel I feel really good about where we are at diversability. You know, I I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that I started 1.0 of this 12 years ago. So I don't want your listeners to think that overnight it just so happened that we figured out we had we could <laughs> we could charge people. Because I also want to highlight that we spent 12 years building our brand up until this point you know, building relationships within the community, getting to know who the different stakeholders were and are and elevating them. So, so yeah, like the little graphic behind you that says always hustling. Yeah, I, I hustled and now I'm, now I'm excited for what do they call it? Is it M, M R M R R? Monthly MR. recurring revenue. Yes. Monthly MR. recurring revenue. We yeah. got monthly recurring revenue. And I will say, I also took a course. There's a company called the business of community. And yeah, I, I was able to, you know, invest in a course that is focused on building community businesses. And I'm really excited to see, you know, I know Asian hustle network has done some really incredible partnerships and gotten some incredible sponsorships. And I would also be remiss, Brian, if I didn't acknowledge how appreciative I am of your leadership and the Asian Hustle Network for really wanting to amplify and spotlight my voice and my work. So um, that has not gone unnoticed. Thank you, Tiffany. And that's a great reminder too. For you guys that don't know, Tiffany is also a part of our HN book. Our HN book features Tiffany um, among other 20 incredible entrepreneurs. So check out that book and check out Tiffany's story. I love it. It's one of my favorites of the book. Thank you. Brian's just been such an incredible friend. I feel really honored to be among giants on this AHN podcast. And it, you know, to look at the growth of AHN over, has it just been one year, two years now? Two years. Yeah. To look at the growth over two years. Unbelievable. Thank you, Tiffany. I appreciate that. I I do want to switch the conversation back to Tiffany as an entrepreneur. (laughs) As you can tell, I'd, I'd 
I'm not the biggest fan of talking myself. Someone said something to me and they said, be interested, not interesting. <laughs> but I feel like you have so much. Maybe I'm wealth. both. Am I both? <laughs> you are both. But I feel like you have so much wealth of knowledge to sort of share to us. So I want to focus a little bit, a little bit on Tiffany, the entrepreneur, right? And we understand that any corporation, any company, anything that you choose to do is incredibly difficult, incredibly lonely, and incredibly stressful. What were some of the times where you thought about giving up? And how did you power through that? Because this is something that we are very interested in learning about and hearing about on this podcast. Yeah, great question. So I don't know if this is the, this is my answer. I, so I started my career in investment banking, which you could argue is one of the more risk averse uh, careers because you do the two years banking. You know, if you're good, they keep you through associate VP, managing director, or you go into private equity or hedge funds, then you go to business school, then you do finance at some startup, become a CFO. So anyway, so there's there's a path. And the reason why I wanted to share that is because I have never dove headfirst into anything without having having a support system. So if we think about Tiffany moving in, getting fired and moving into diversity full time, a year or two prior to that, we had started, diversity had started getting paid, right? That's when that New York Public Library thing came in. So not only that, I've always believed in not being totally dependent on one stream of revenue. So Brian and I have had chats before about real estate investing and passive income and and so again, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that I feel very privileged to have a diversity of places that you can that I that I have revenue. And Arlen Hamilton, who is someone who is the founder of Backstage Capital and is an entrepreneur investor that I really admire, actually recently gave a masterclass and said that you have to have eight, you should strive to have eight streams of revenue. You could be selling stuff on Craigslist, selling some old clothes on eBay or Poshmark, you know? So, I mean, and maybe those aren't bringing in the large... Actually, I sound like I'm Gary V right now. So I don't, I don't want to channel any Gary V vibes, but I guess I just wanted to share that I, even though it looks scary, because also disability advocacy doesn't really pay that much, right? So it's, again, figuring out what is the system that I can put into place. So even before we started our paid memberships like most of our money was coming from corporates, right? So part of the thinking is how can we, like not only am I a beneficiary of what I've created as well, you know, if, if we come back into kind of like the the nonprofit model, it's like, how can we serve as much as possible and find, you know, larger places to get money? But then you literally like go to every person. They're like, well, why don't you get more sponsorships? Brian, why don't you get more sponsorships? Like literally every advocacy related organization or community is looking for sponsorship. So um, for me, even if we look at how I describe diversity's business model, it's also diversified. We've got our speaking stuff, we've got the membership, we've got the sponsorships, you know. So so yeah. I, the thing that came to my mind was always be hustling. But I also want people to know I'm not hustling all the time and rest is very important. So how do I power through is by taking breaks. <laughs> But also, yeah, so so really for me, it's been diversified streams of revenue. Like even if something on the, like even if the highlight reel looks like I'm taking big risks, 
I have spent a long time thinking about it. And then at the same time, plugging myself into entrepreneurial communities like Asian Hustle Network. I'm part of some women's communities as well. Just knowing that you're not alone as well. And I think that part of what has helped me power through is in some of my some of my darkest times as an entrepreneur, I've been able to go to an Asian Hustle Network or one of the women's entrepreneurial communities I'm part of is called Dreamers and Doers, or I can go to Dreamers and Doers and I can say, hey, like this is what's happening right now. And I even have a WhatsApp group that I'm part of called Humans with Anxiety. And sometimes when I feel like I'm going through really intense anxiety, which is one of my PTSD symptoms, I go into that group and I say, hi, I'm having, hey, I'm having a really high anxiety moment right now. Is anyone available to talk? And even, you know, being able to turn to someone like you, Brian, you know, I know we've had, we've had a couple a couple of conversations. And, and, and the other thing I'll highlight too, is that it's really hard to compartmentalize parts of our lives. So actually one of the things that I feel really grateful for Brian about is I went through a breakup around this time last year and he like door dashed me boba and going through that breakup impacted how I showed up and work. My heart was broken, you know? So, so that's why I brought that up, but, but yeah, communities and calculated risk and taking breaks. Those are some really good tips. And, uh, you know, Boba definitely helps with, with the darkest times, especially for myself, at least. And I know entrepreneurship is not, not what you see. It is online. It's not as glorious, not the nice cars. You don't do it for the money. You do it for the community, right? You do it for yeah, the I, I also want to say, like, sometimes people will come to me and they're like, Tiffany, like, I just want your life. Like you're traveling all the time and you're like on tic- your TikTok star. And I'm like, do you know how much time I spend in Canva moving, like increasing the spacing between the fonts and, you know, moving different bullet squares around? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's some behind the stuff, behind the scenes stuff that doesn't get shown on, on the highlight reel. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. A lot of work and on some work that a lot of people may or may not notice that we do behind the scenes because we're so passionate about what we want to do, you know, and we want to make sure that we're creating a better space for everyone and making the world a better place for tomorrow. So shout out for people like yourself, Tiffany. We love you so much. Thank you for what you yeah, do. Yeah. And, and shout out to you as well. Cause as you know, as a community builder and a community entrepreneur, you know, when our, when our product is the community, People, our community members have opinions all the time and it can be really hard and sometimes feel really thankless. And I actually remember, Brian, one time you reached out to me and you said, Tiffany, like what keeps you going during these times when everyone's got, you know, some critical feedback for you? And I respond to you and I said, I, I just remind myself that our mission is bigger than these couple of pieces of feedback, like don't forget the mission uh, and the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Absolutely. And that sort of brings us up to time. So Tiffany, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you and learn more about yeah. diversibility? Yeah. So if you want to follow me, you can follow me across social media at I'm Tiffany U. That's the letter I, the letter M, and my first and last name. And then if you are interested in learning more about diversibility, you can follow diversibility across social media. Awesome. Thank, thank you, Tiffany, so much for sharing your story and going being so vulnerable with us and sharing all your knowledge with us. We highly appreciate it. And to be honest, I can't see, I can't wait to see how things are going to evolve for you and continue growing for you because 
You're a remarkable person, remarkable human being, and an awesome entrepreneur. So I'm excited for what the future holds. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.